Welcome to Terminal Talk, a podcast on mainframe and mainframe-related topics. In the studio, I'm Frank. At home, I'm Jeff. And with us today is CIO... Uh, <laughs> You've forgotten who I am already? No, no, oh my God. It wasn't, it wasn't the name. Which I, was, I was trying to think of how I was going to um, slam Peter and, and say your name at the same time. I will not be <laughs> editing this out. <laughs> <laughs> I can see how this goes already. <laughs> yeah. So um, CIO, uh, Scott Chapman, for Enterprise Performance Strategies, uh, um, from whom we've heard early in our history, but uh, Peter Enrico, um, who spoke, um, has been banned from the show for impugning our journalistic integrity. Mm-hmm. Um, so we now have the, the better part of that company. Hey, there we go. I, I was just happy to know that you guys felt like you had journalistic integrity, right? So <laughs> that, that gave me confidence that I could come and talk to you. <laughs> cool. So so um, isn't he a performance guy? So what does a CIO do? Why am I CIO? Yeah. Yeah. Well, because, hey, we're a small company and, and we have lots of information we need to take care of too. So as we're going down our journey for we're actually right in the process of getting ISO 27001 certified. Um, and as part of that, you need roles, right? And you need to define roles and responsibilities. So I got defined as a CIO. Uh, so, yeah, <laughs> it's because everybody else uh, stepped back and something, go. something very much like that. Yes. <laughs> but, but outside of your very critical CIO role, um, your work with clients is more about making sure that people get the most out of their their Z machines, right? Absolutely. We do a we talk to a lot of customers all over the world um, about their ZOS performance. So it's uh, I've been with Peter now for seven and a half years, eight years, something like that. I I don't know. The time goes by, right? So um, it, 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 I'm still here because he hasn't impugned my journalistic integrity. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> well, it's good but, to know you have standards too. It, absolutely. We all we all should have standards, right? Exactly. <laughs> but yeah, we do a lot of work with a lot of customers. And of course, the number one thing uh, these days, especially, is, is always about CPU performance, right? And how you can improve your performance by reducing your CPU consumption, uh, how you can reduce costs by reducing CPU consumption, um, or just making sure that they're, you know, taking full advantage of uh, those capabilities that are inherent in the processor, um, which is always interesting stuff because, I mean, these processors today are extremely sophisticated, right? And the new Z16 with the Telum chip uh, just continues that. Um, so how, how how big of a back to the drawing board is that every time a new machine comes out? Um, it's actually not too bad um, for for us. And now the new Telum chip uh, does change a lot about the cache hierarchy, right? Right. And so some of the very detailed stuff uh, that we get into in terms of trying to analyze the uh, chip performance. Um, I haven't seen any numbers on those yet, uh, so I'm very interested in how the 113 measurements are going to change, or whether they're just going to keep the the, the data 
basically looking, even though it's now a virtual level three and level four, essentially, right? They'll probably keep the numbers there where they were. Um, I, I haven't seen that data yet, though. But for, for the end user, it's almost always, it's kind of, I don't want to say it's a non-event because it's not. Uh, but, you know, the great thing about the, the mainframe environment is we have this great history of backwards compatibility, right? Um, it, before I joined up with Peter, um, the company I was working at for over 20 years, I know we had code in production uh, that was running in production that was compiled in 1974. So mm. <laughs> not that that was a significant code or anything, um, but there was some low utility out there. So, you know, that whole backwards compatibility thing is really kind of amazing. Uh, it does carry forward. The one thing that pe- trips people up, though, is while as an end user and usually as an application programmer, you really don't necessarily have to care you do have to recompile uh, to take advantage of those new chip features, right? And that's where one thing where I think people get tripped up is they're running all this old code. And while it's great that I could have code from 1974 that's still running, that's uh, that may not be the best in terms of performance, right? Um, and so that's one thing where I think people would do well to realize, you know, you got a new machine, it wouldn't hurt you to recompile that code using the new optimizer uh, flags and everything to say, hey, I'm running on this new machine. Uh, And they'll probably get a lot more capacity out of the machine by doing that if they haven't compiled in several generations. So, is that really a thing where like without, without naming names, obviously where, <laughs> where somebody would not want to, or not be able to recompile their code to, to take advantage of, of, you know, new benefits. Um, having been on the application side early in my career, um, I can tell you that, uh, yeah, sometimes there's definitely a resistance to, uh, recompiling, right. Um, why do I want to go through that uh, pain and suffering of having to go recompile everything? Um, But in reality, yeah, there can be very definite benefits. The other place where you see a a problem sometimes, not as much these days, but sometimes uh, is if you actually have application programmers writing assembly code. Um, Because there, you know, to fully optimize your machine, you do have to understand what's going on with the new uh, the new processor, right? And because of that, you may have old assembly code. Reassembling is not going to fix those problems. You actually uh, may have to right. go change the way you're doing things, either take advantage of new instructions, you know, deal with the whole store into instruction stream issue where you're referencing data that's within one cache line within 256 bytes of the <laughs> uh, of your instruction, that sort of detail. Uh, that's not something you just can recompile. And we do have, uh, we have seen that with customers where they have old assembler code um, and that store into instruction stream thing is significant for them. Yeah, imagine that we now live in a world where your assembler code may be slower. <laughs> right? Exactly. Exactly. I it, Yeah, it's kind of crazy because people make fun of Java, right? And say, oh, Java is so terrible. Oh, it's in, it's interpreted. Well, it's not really, it, it is interpreted, but at runtime, it, there's this thing called the just-in-time compiler, right? 
which compiles the code just in time as you're executing it, which is really great from the perspective of, hey, I'm always recompiling for the latest machine because I'm recompiling right now. Right. Um, so, yeah, you absolutely could have Java code that's running faster than assembler code in s- some cases. Now, don't don't take that to say, hey, Java is great. We should all convert all of our assembler to Java. I'll snap that out and make it a soundbite. Don't worry. (laughs) (laughs) Scott says. (laughs) I I will say that Java runs better than what a lot of people give it credit for, though. Right. Actually, I ran into this the other day just on my own Mac. You know, we've been moving to the M1 chips, which are Mm -hmm. incredible as long as everything's optimized for it. And there's a lot of stuff where it's like, oh, this is a Java program. Oh, wait a second. There's an M1 version of the Java runtime. This actually runs better than the optimized stuff did that hasn't been optimized yet. <laughs> Absolutely. it's uh, it, Recompiling can make a difference for, I mean, there's a reason why you guys spend all these this time designing these chips and putting new instructions in them and all that sort of stuff, right? Yeah. So um, I don't want you to give away any, any secrets or anything, but... <laughs> Um, I have uh, secrets I can give away. <laughs> so, so how do how do you go about um, figuring out if a company is is running their Z machines the most efficient way possible? <laughs> um, so that's kind of a loaded question. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> I will say there's a number of things that I do look at. Uh, when I come into the, you know, a new shop that I haven't seen before. Um, and there's a number of things that I see across the industry that people are doing that I think just are, let's say, short-sighted. Um, and, and probably the biggest thing uh, that over the last several years I've seen that uh, kind of a consistent problem with is in the smaller to mid-sized shops, they sometimes have a tendency to go with fewer, faster versus more slower CPs. And that sort of thing drives me nuts because the the more slower scenario oftentimes is more efficient than the fewer, faster scenario. And if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense, right? Because how many things can a CPU be doing at one time? Well, we got zips with SMT, so let's just ignore the zips for a moment, right? <laughs> um, because SMT makes my head hurt, and you know. <laughs> but you know, for the general purpose engines, a, a CPU can only be doing can only be processing instructions from one program at a time, uh, for for one task at a time. And so, if you have a machine that only has two CPs on it, I mean, I've seen customers with machines with two CPs. And they got two or three LPARs, and those LPARs, you know, probably have hundreds of tasks running on them. I'm always amazed that that stuff runs as well as it does in those scenarios. Um, and if they just would, you know, consider, hey, could we go to slower CPs and maybe have more C- more of them? So maybe we have very similar capacity in the end, but we have more CPs to dispatch work on then you could get actually not only get better performance, you know, even though the CPs are slower, now you could actually get dispatched on that CP sooner than if you were waiting around because, hey, I only got two CPs, the other LPAR is using it. Now my poor program here has to sit and wait for that other LPAR to finish, let alone the same sort of thing happening within an LPAR, right? Um, So that's kind of one of my, the more slower uh, versus fewer faster 
thing is kind of one of my pet peeves. So um, that's one of the things that, uh, it, unfortunately, that's also one of the things where it usually was set and people are loath to try and change that, right? <laughs> well, yeah, it's working. It's working now. And you're going to do what? <laughs> it, it, yeah. And, and it's funny because, you know, you can go use ZPCR, you know, IBM's free tool to do the, the processor capacity. Um, and you can plug in those different scenarios. And I've seen in certain situations, you know, hey, an overall benefit of like 10%. In other words, I get 10% more effective capacity versus, you know, the named number of MSUs on the machine, for example, by going to more slower versus fewer or faster. So it, it can make a, an absolute difference. But I get where people are like, hey, we bought this machine. Now you're telling me you want to you go change the configuration all around and yeah i, I get it's it's kind of a hard sell but <laughs> but but, but the, the the cpu isn't generally where people notice slowdown right um i don't know whether i would agree with that today um hmm. because uh you know it used to be in the old days right what did we do we said oh it's always io problems <laughs> always io right? Because the disk was slow and you had all those queues building up to get onto the disk because you had SCON channels. You remember SCON channels? Yes. They looked a lot like FICON channels, only they were a different <laughs> color. <laughs> the, uh, uh, but they, you could only be doing one IO down a, an SCON channel at a time, right? Right. Well, now we have FICON channels. They're faster. You can do multiple IOs down them at the same time. We're sending those IOs not down to spinning disks, but down to solid state disks in most cases. We have these big caches that are out in the control unit as well. And when you go back and when you take a step back and look at it, there's very little. It's not that IO isn't still expensive because even those IOs are getting done now sometimes in, you know, a few tenths of a millisecond, right? Um, whereas... 20 years ago, you were happier if you were seeing, what, three millisecond IO right. response time? So now your IOs are taking one-tenth the time. Um, and by the way, what else happened over the last several years? We got large memory, right? right? So now we're looking at machines sometimes that have terabytes of memory on them. What do you do with all that memory? Well, you use it for to buffer things and not do IO. So now we're not waiting for memory because we're not paging. We're not waiting as much for I.O. because all the I.O. is now sitting in memory, hopefully, and that that's not is going to these solid state disks that we're not having to wait to get to a channel or wait to get to a disk. So in a lot of ways, CPU performance really is a, a major issue today. Um, another point, too, is, you know, you do end up with things like network time and stuff like that if you actually have to go off and talk to some other platform heaven help you but um <laughs> keep everything on the mainframe and you, know, you don't have that problem right right yep <laughs> how much going. does the type of client play into like the decisions made for for tuning like is the analysis different for like a data heavy company versus like a compute heavy company is just you talking about like the you know the, the changes in, in data access times kind of spark that off my mind um i don't know but that's an interesting uh, question i like this uh, idea of compute heavy versus data heavy right um 
And I think there's something interesting there I need to go think about because I need to figure out how to classify customers that way and then figure that I think it's an interesting concept. I don't have a good answer for you related to that. But I I will give you homework. (laughs) Everybody else does. Why should you be different? (laughs) (laughs) That's good, though. Those terminal talk guys, they're pretty smart. (laughs) (laughs) I will say that different uh, types of customers sometimes do have different uh, problems, right? So like the uh, the brokerage houses, right? What are they worried about? They're worried about market open. And mm-hmm. so you go talk to those guys and oftentimes they're worried about maybe just a few minutes of the day where market opens and they get slammed with all those orders that built up overnight or however that works, right? Um, and, you know, the rest of the trading day, maybe they're they're concerned about performance, certainly, but there seems to be these real significant spikes. And so they may be worried about just a relatively few number of minutes during the day uh, versus if you go to something uh, like a manufacturer or a retailer, uh, oftentimes they'll be interested in performance, you know, during the day for their online people. They're actually in the stores buying things or, you know, building things on the manufacturing floor or whatever it is, right? But maybe they don't care so much about batch overnight. Um, so there are different cycles. Um, yeah, so it, it is interesting. Different industries and different customers have different cycles. And you always have to figure out where those where those pain points are. And to that point, they are often temporally based, right? They're based at some point in time uh, based on what the business does. Temporally based. Like that's that. incredible. <laughs> <laughs> and that's imper- important in a mercurial environment. <laughs> in a mercurial environment. Oh, interesting. Did, I didn't realize you knew what source code uh, management we used. <laughs> that's funny because we've, we've used mercurial for many years for uh, our source code management. And uh, the, all the world moved to Git and left us... Uh, I'm mercurial, and I'm afraid I may have to move to Git here sometime soon, which makes me a little sad. Yeah, everybody's saying that worldwide, right? No matter where you are. Um, oh, I guess we got to do Git now. Um, this yeah. is our life now. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So, so how do you how do you get started? Right, you you go into this new, uh, you know, Jeff's computer company, and you're going to help him optimize his is Z16 environment because we all know Jeff is a is a rich man and has his own uh, <laughs> cisplex at home. So so three, three. It's three. <laughs> He's smart. He really knows this redundancy thing. Yeah, so, he's the first two go down. <laughs> <laughs> so, so how do you get started? Do you do you say, hey, you need to do these reports for me up front, or? Hey, you, you, come in and- you send us data is, is the always the first answer, right? The great thing about the mainframe is we have something called SMF data, <laughs> um, system management facility, not yes. measurement facility, which always feels like it should be measurement to be, but it's management. Um, and so we always ask, I mean, the first thing we always do is ask for the SMF data, right? Because that's where all uh, a lot of the information lies. There's always information in PowerPoint members and stuff like that, that when we go in to do uh, what we call our war room type of consultations where we sit down with the customer for a couple of days and, you know, walk through intensively through their performance. Um, you know, we'll ask for Parm Lab members and stuff like that as well. 
but it always starts with the SMF data because from the SMF data, we can see what's going on in the machines, what's going on uh, in terms of the different LPARs on those machines. Uh, you know, we can start looking for things like, hey, here's all your IO that I just said is never a problem, right? But look, you do have a problem here because you're still seeing iOS queue time. Why the heck are you seeing iOS queue time in today's world? Um, so right. let's go fix that. Because uh, he's still using 3350s. Ah, that's it. Well, <laughs> yeah, he's and he's sending that FICON down to an SCON converter to convert <laughs> it to a parallel channel, right? <laughs> Um, I was just joking when I was laughing before. What's iOS Q and 3350? <laughs> uh, so iOS queue time is actually queuing, uh, uh, waiting to actually get a UCB. Oh, no, I probably said another bad thing, right? So waiting to get to a, a disk within the operating system. Ah. Um, and it used to be back in the old days, right? Uh, when we go far enough back, right, it made sense that each spinning disk was a real spinning disk out there. And that spinning disk could only be going to one thing at a time. So it made sense way back in the dawn of time, right, that you'd have this unit control block, this UCB in memory that would represent that disk. And you could only be doing one IO to one UCB at a time. But in today's world, with all the emulated disk and they're all on SSDs, and you got you can be doing multiple IOs to the same logical disk simultaneously. Um, so if you're, if you see iOS queue time, that's typically because you're waiting on that UCB and today that problem should be, should have gone away, uh, as of about, oh, seven or so years ago, I think it was, it may be, it may be longer than that. I don't remember. This is 2022, isn't it? Yep. <laughs> time has passed. Yes. <laughs> um, so now there's things like uh, PAV, which when they introduced the parallel access volumes to be able to do multiple IOs to one uh, volume simultaneously, that was great. And huh. it solved most of the, the I, solved part of the IOSQ problem. And then you had dynamic PAV, which solved a little more. And then you had uh, hyper PAV, which solved even more and took care of 90% of your uh, iOS queue time. And then that still wasn't all of it. So they came out with super PAV uh, and why super came after hyper. I don't know whether somebody <laughs> got ahead of themselves with hyper or do you guys have any insight into IBM naming? Cause that's one thing I've always been concerned. No, and, um, trying to understand stand that, that, that drives you mad. <laughs> yes, it does. But the point is today you shouldn't be you shouldn't see iOS queue time because you should have super PAV, which should take care of that for you, unless you haven't turned it on properly, which we come across a fair number of those. Um, so we see things like that in the data. We see, uh, like I said, things like, um, oh, yeah, here's where you're spending your CPU time. Oh, look, you don't have you, you, you only have two CPs on this machine. Well, life is might be hard for you sometimes, right? Um so, yeah, we get a lot of that information. And, uh, yeah, that's another thing that people don't do properly uh, that drives us nuts, too, is they aren't recording the data or the, the appropriate data or they aren't recording uh, data at a frequent enough uh, interval, right? So they have their RMF interval set to 30 minutes, um, which 30 minutes is a really long time in today's performance world, right? Um so don't do that. And most people, 90% of the customers do have it set to 15 minutes, which is 
okay-ish. But oftentimes today we want to get down to a much more granular level. And that's where the 99s and the 98s come into play. Because with the 99s and the 98s, we can get down now to looking at performance on a sub-minute basis, basically down to a few seconds uh, type of level. And unfortunately, a lot of customers still don't record the 99s and the 98s the way they should be. Uh, so that's another thing I've been railing on for the last several years is that, you know, when the SMF 99 records came out in 1995 uh, and IBM told everybody, well, don't record those until we tell you to because there are a lot of overhead. Because it was 1995. Right. Right. <laughs> we have a little more storage and disk is a little cheaper today. So, um, I mean, but you had to wait for the, the bird to carve out the slate. And then uh, <laughs> that's what I saw in the beginning of some some show I was watching. It, it, it does. It did take a documentary, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, so do you start by before they dump the data? Do, do you start by saying, "Hey, guys, make sure that you set all these things this way for for recording"? And then, how long do you need to to look? Is it a week's worth of data? Is it a month? <laughs> um, so, yeah, when we're trying to help people, we always tell them, "Send us the interesting days, right?" Um, <laughs> and send us ideally, if you have a problem day. What I really want is I want the problem day and then I want a normal day, right, where you didn't have the problem. So I can compare and contrast um, in terms of, hey, are they recording the right stuff? In most cases, with the exception of the 99s and the 98s, which, again, a lot of people are unfortunately not recording. Um, most people are recording most of the data that we look for uh, because they have the RMF or CMF data turned on and they're recording it. Um and that's the unfortunate thing, too, is that if you had a problem and you're trying to send us data or even send IBM, right, uh, data to look at a problem, if you weren't recording that data or you had your stinking recording interval set to 30 minutes and you're not recording any 99s, well, guess what? You don't get to go back in time and generate that data, right? right. So do it right now so that when you have a problem, you, uh, I mean, like we said, you're, we're, we don't have birds carving the data in the stone. <laughs> or maybe you do. Maybe that's really what's in the box, and they're just really, really fast now. I guess I don't know. <laughs> is that something that, that clients are, are uh, keen to reconfigure, or is that kind of like a, well, this is what we record, deal with it kind of thing? Uh, in most cases, most customers will uh, see the light and, and are okay with turning that on. Um, you, it, it most customers, it's not a big deal for to get to convince them to turn it on. The yeah. ninety, for example, the ninety nines, the uh, there's a limited number of subtypes that we really want to see, and then there's the rest of them that hey, this would be nice to see as well. Those limited subtypes that we're looking for, um, there should be on the order of like fifty to hundred megabytes of data per system per day. So if your wow. if your mainframe can't handle a hundred megabytes of data per day, <laughs> then you have bigger uh, problems. Yeah, that, that's <laughs> not a too gymnasium late worth of data anymore. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so yeah, and, and even there, I mean, you look at it and say, okay, well, turn on all of them, and it's like half a gigabyte of data a day, and you're like, well, did you even care about that? I, I hope not, right? <laughs> yeah, probably not, right? 
So, okay, you mentioned um, a big thing that you end up doing is telling people um, change those those two fast uh, cores for 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 four slower ones. You you, you mentioned the fact that that uh, people often aren't recording the right things. What what's the number three on Scott's hit parade of things <laughs> things he wished the clients knew? Things that uh, he wished clients knew. Um, well, then maybe we're pr- starting to get into uh, tuning uh, WLM and how WLM manages the system, right? Uh, so you know, workload manager is great. Um, workload manager is still ahead of its time. It's been over 25 years since WLM was introduced. Um, and I don't think there's another platform that has anything as sophisticated as WLM, um, which isn't that kind of amazing. I mean. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, we this is a dangerous path to take me down because <laughs> I've been doing the WLM thing for a long time. Um, but, yeah, the, I think, though, a lot of it is based on the fact that we fundamentally dispatch work differently on Z than everywhere else. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that makes a big difference. And, and, and believe so, me as moving from, uh, uh, I, I was over 20 years, right. Uh, application programmer and system programmer and performance analyst, uh, you know, running my work on a mainframe. And then when I came to join up with Peter, right. We process all of, uh, the customer's data on AWS on Linux machines. And, um, <laughs> Is kind of a little bit of a, a, a I, I'd, I'd used Linux before. I'd, I've been using Linux, you know, in my basement since, you know, 2000 or something. So it wasn't like it was entirely new to me. But still, once you get down to actually trying to manage work, real work, as opposed to your silly little server in your basement, right? Um, you suddenly really have a new appreciation for what the mainframe does and what WLM does for you and all that. Having said that, there's still a lot of uh, a lot of people. I think somehow fundamentally uh, misunderstand or don't fully fully understand uh, what WLM is is doing for you. Um, and in a lot of ways, uh, it, it's also the problem of hey, you don't have a problem until you have a problem, right? right. I, I was going to say that right. As as long as there's no contention, the, <laughs> the policy isn't really all that important, right? Well, that's true, and we say that all the time, and that is true, and we often go and look at our our performance data that's cut on 15-minute intervals, right, and look at it and go, hey, yeah, you're only running at 60%, 70% busy on this machine. You have no problems here, right, and miss out on the fact that, you know, that may be true on a 15-minute interval basis, but if you were to delve into what's happening on a minute by minute basis, uh, you may find that, okay, so I averaged 70% busy over that 15 minute interval, but I was a hundred percent busy for the first five minutes. Right. Right. Um, and that's something again, where those 99 records, uh, become very, very interesting. Uh, it was great when hyper dispatch came out and IBM added the 99 subtype 12s, uh, because the subtype 12s give you, utilization numbers on a two-second basis. So now we can see how busy the Keck was on a two-second by two-second basis because two seconds is a hyper-dispatch interval. Um, so now we can we can generate reports and say, 
oh yeah, your TSO users were complaining about login at you know five minutes after nine, and you looked at your that interval of RMF data and said I was only seventy percent busy. I had no problems here, but you look go look for two or three minutes around nine oh five, and all of a sudden you see well the machine was really running at hundred percent busy there because of whatever work came in right. right. Um, so it is it is interesting, and I think part of the what people don't get too is that having it exceeding your goals is not necessarily a good thing. That's <laughs> so you wanted my number three. So my number three, I want I, that on a t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> um, that could be what you guys were at share ne- the next share. <laughs> <laughs> exceeding your goals is not always a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> I may have to print that up just for you guys. <laughs> um, but I mean, that it, it's absolutely true because uh, if, if you tell, I was just helping a customer this morning, uh, they were asking about some TSO uh, performance issues they were seeing and their goal was 90% of their period one transactions less than one second, which sounds like an okay thing, right? 90% of my transactions should be less than one second. But when you think about it, one second is a long time today if your transaction is hitting page down in your ISPF editor, right? <laughs> um, that, that, that could be a long time. So it, that, you know, that goes back to people set goals 20 years ago, maybe, and they were a good goal 20 years ago, and maybe they aren't now. Um, but the other side of it is, too, when we went and looked at that, I was like, oh, well, Actually, like 95% of your transactions are completing in less than 50% of that goal. And we don't know how much better they are doing than half a second. But because the way WLM records those in buckets, that first bucket is 50% of the goal value. So that first bucket is everything that completed within a half a second. Mm -hmm. You may have had, you know, most of those 95% trans, uh, of those transactions could have been completing in a tenth of a second, right? right. Uh, we don't know. We just know that a whole lot of those are less than half. So because of that, WLM would look at that goal and would say, hey, this thing is greatly exceeding its goal. What do I need to give it for a dispatching priority? Well, right. it, not a whole lot at the moment because it's doing really well, right? right? And then all of a sudden, and there we went and looked at the 99 uh, sub- subtype sixes, and we could see on a 10 second by 10 second basis, you know, where it was relative to other things. And sure enough, here we have an importance one workload, which is at the top of the importance chain, you know, below SysSDC and system. And we had batch workload, test batch workload, run. there was importance uh, three and four, I think, running at the same dispatching priority. Well, why is that? Well, because that the TSO work was so greatly exceeding its goals. Right. So exceeding so, your goals, not always a good thing. Yeah. Not always a good thing. <laughs> That's the episode title too. So, so not even <laughs> just turning the dials underneath the covers and getting into the, you know, the CPU gorp, it sounds like uh, getting in touch with the, you know, the staying on top of workload goals and keeping those up to date and realistic is just as important. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and that's where we always tell people, Hey, you should always revisit your goals whenever you make a major change, even sometimes a small change, uh, in the environment. Um, now response time goals generally are 
less problematic and should require less maintenance over time. Um, but less maintenance doesn't re- mean zero maintenance, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it has been interesting that um, if you even if you look at response time goals, response time goals, my th- I don't want to say our thinking, uh, but let me say my thinking uh, has skewed uh, more towards, hey, there are times where uh, averages, uh, for example, for average response time goals versus percentile response time goals, there may be situations where averages are a good thing, in my opinion. Um, I haven't convinced, uh, I haven't fully convinced Peter of that yet. Um, so we often argue about, hey, what, what type of goal should we be using for this and how stringent, blah, 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 blah. But, um, which is always, uh, always that, that, that would be worth having him on for just to have you guys argue. Oh, okay. <laughs> Should we lift the ban? Yeah, maybe we'll lift the ban just to get a topic and have these guys argue and be, you know, performance death match. You know, it'd be pretty cool. Yeah. Well, you know, and uh, you said, hey, you know, you don't have to get down into the nitty gritty of the CPU. And that's true that there's a lot of stuff at a higher level you have to manage. But the other thing that I, I try to impress on people, uh, especially when I, I teach my essentials uh, performance class, uh, we spend a fair bit of time talking about what's going on down there at a dispatching interval type of basis, right? So down at the millisecond by millisecond basis, when you start thinking about how does the CPU actually process work, right? And the fact that you have... You can only run one thing on that CPU at a time, and occasionally it has to wait because it has to access something from memory, which we just got done saying earlier in the episode, right, that memory is so much faster than disk and we aren't doing AIO, and, that, and now we're saying, oh, but we have to wait for memory. Oh, my gosh. Um, so it's all a matter of perspective, but I do think when you start thinking and understanding, you know, there are things like dispatch intervals, right, and we have this reduce preemption that's happening in the operating system and how that makes sure that work gets done and everything. All those sort of details, um, if you build up from there, uh, I think increases your understanding of what's going on in the operating system. And sometimes then things that you start to see that didn't necessarily make sense before, you know, suddenly it starts to become clear when you start realizing, oh, okay, well, this is how things are being dispatched this is why I want to configure things like this and so forth. So I do think that while not everybody has to worry about exactly, you know, hey, this instruction is more efficient than this instruction or, you know, I'm storing data within one cache line of my instructions or whatever. Um, I think having an appreciation of that is important for a performance analyst who really wants to understand what's going on. Yeah, that completely makes sense. And and I'd like to to vote for having the episode uh, called What's Going On Down There. Um, <laughs> just saying. <laughs> so that's on the back of the T-shirt? Yes. <laughs> I'm not sure that I want that. I wrote my the back. <laughs> So, so we're, we're well beyond the bottom of the hour. I, I do have one important question I'd like to ask. Um, mm-hmm. How much better than Peter are you? <laughs> well, I guess that would be at what? 
<laughs> See, I'm not going to answer that without without knowing the details behind the question, right? <laughs> I will I will say this. I I always tell people there's nobody better to learn uh, WLM from than Peter Enrico because he was there when they were writing the code, right? Now, whether he can remember what he wrote, that's <laughs> a, a different story. Age. Yeah, a age, you know, you got to expect. But but do you guys teach people how to build a, a policy based on, hey, here's your SMF data. You know, uh, this is how you read through it to figure out what your policy should look like. Or do you just want them to keep calling you every year to fix it? <laughs> uh, well, uh, yeah, ideally they would sign up for our service, right? And they'd be sending us data every every day and we'd be processing the data. It is interesting because people who are longtime uh, customers, our regular customers, we do these once a year review calls with them just to check in with them. Say, hey, how's performance going? Here's what we see in your environment, blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, and unfortunately, unfortunately for the, for the benefit of having a nice meeting, um, <laughs> our long-term customers, sometimes they're getting to be somewhat boring because they've implemented all these changes. There's not a whole lot of problems. And, so forth. So the newer customers, we typically have much more vigorous meetings where we can point out lots of different things and so forth. And over time, they do get better. But more directly to answer your question, we do have classes. Peter teaches a uh, a week long class on on WLM and uh, uh, everything about WLM. I teach the essential the ZOS performance essentials class, um, and we talk about WLM for a day or so, but we don't spend you know four to four and a half days on WLM. Um, and you can spend that long on WLM if you're trying to understand it soup to nuts, right? Um, and how it interacts with all the different uh, subsystems and all of that sort of stuff. But but we do help customers too. We have an engagement. We're working with one customer right now to basically completely rewrite their WLM policy um, because it was uh, kind of old and let's just say unique. <laughs> <laughs> They probably did what I did, which was pull down the generic one that you got in the beginning and just kind of tweak it and play with it until it seems to work the way you want. Uh, they, yeah, not, yeah, some of that. that They also came up with very unique uh, uh, naming conventions, too, that didn't make things easy. There's a, there's some, now, they weren't doing this, but we have seen customers where they'll name all their service classes for the goal which makes it really, really <laughs> difficult when you need to change the goal of that service class, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so it, those those drive me a little nuts, too. So, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. And Scott Chapman from, um, it's Enterprise, I'm trying to remember, I was saying, Enterprise, right? Enterprise Performance, Performance Strategies. Strategies, right? Yes. I didn't name the company. You'll have to go talk to Peter about that. See, he came from IBM, so he has this naming thing going. Apparently, he learned at IBM. Yeah, the bad, bad naming. It's, it's just part of the training. I, I wouldn't say IBM. it's bad. It's just long, right? <laughs> and and do you want to uh, push any uh, socials or anything like that for... Um, yeah, Pivoter.com and, uh, yeah, go for, or epstrategies.com, I guess, eh? Perfect. Perfect. Well, thanks a lot, Scott. This has been great. Thank you, Scott. Hey, thank you, guys. I appreciate being here. We'll have to do it again sometime. <laughs> with, with Peter, so we can watch you argue. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right. Old man Charlie, run us out. You've been listening.